You're listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying rooted in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We're both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. So, Wade, episode two, Mm. How Masculinity Saved the World. Which, by the way, that's a very masculine church name that we have. I never really thought about it before, but... Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Christ the King. Very... Yeah. <laughs> it just drips with good testosterone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't say it that way. Um, yeah. All right. So I'll kick it over to you to get us going. What do you have for us today? Oh, by the way, before I before we do that... Um, I was all ready to go. I, well, I, I have I to just turn the car on. It's in drive. Now I'm putting it back in park. <laughs> go ahead. Um, I just want to mention a an email address. I just set this up. It'll be in the show notes. Um, but we want to, so we're just starting off this podcast and we want to interact with uh, listeners. Um, so if you, if you would like to uh, send us a question or comment, use currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Mm. Currentrealitypodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And that's right. like G-M-A-L-E, like... G mail no no G M A I L D oh okay the mail uh, like the guy delivers to your postal box okay um it is a guy who delivers my mail I've never really thought about that before but I don't I don't see too many women mail oh delivered. we do we've had several okay. ladies deliver it must just be my part of town um okay so our opening question today connected to our topic of how masculinity saved the world and is saving the world what part of Real masculinity, biblically defined masculinity, was most surprising to you as you came into manhood? Hmm. Most surprising. I have, well, I have to, I'll have to verbally process okay. and talk my way through it. The, I think as I first started to enter into this uh, conversation, thought, this this line of thinking about ma- biblical masculinity, healthy masculinity, I think there is a certain type of caricature that I'd absorbed from culture, which is, um, which is something that I I instinctively recoiled from. Mm. I did not like the macho man. Um, so I, you, I would think like somebody that is athletic, tall, mm. strong, deep voice, and some of those things sure are, you know can be part of the profile of a masculine man but to see but I saw those things as um those things I sort of imported that into assuming well I guess that's what it means to be a godly man was that caricature informed by your west virginia kind of like that that part of the country you grew up in a part of it yeah so i'm i'm not i'm not a great athlete um i mean I enjoy playing sports, but I was just never, never all that good at it. Baseball was probably the one I was best at, but so I think being not very athletic, I'm more musically inclined. Mm. Um, uh, my, where I excelled as a child was in music. Um, and so the thought of what a man, what makes a real man was always something that, um, that I wanted to understand better. It was important to me, but it seemed as though, um, the, whatever the definition was, I, there was maybe a fear that would this not apply to me? Mm-hmm. And am I going to have to, is God going to require me to, to reshape, like remake who I naturally am, not in, in ways that aren't inherently or obviously sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, so would I have to put down my guitar 
and, or stop playing piano and become a football captain or something. Um, so whenever I, I, I think of the, the definition of, I guess it's Doug Wilson's, um, it's the glad, glad assumption, assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Yeah. Is that the definition? Yeah, of, I, th- I think of that's manhood. Is that? Yeah, I think that's the one he uses of either masculinity or manhood. They're really kind of synonyms, but yeah. So I, when I read that, um, that was one of those those sentences that stopped on the stopped me in my tracks as I was reading it, and I thought, you know, okay, that one that immediately resonated as something that seemed self evidently true, mm. and it was something that would summon from a man the characteristics that I had been thinking about. So if you were if you are like two, 300 years ago or in pre, you know, pre like the biblical times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were going to take responsibility for a wife and some children, a household, there will need to be a kind of strength that you will want to cultivate because you are laying down your life for them. And that doesn't mean that masculinity equals going to the gym. It means taking responsibility will summon from within you whatever is necessary to fulfill your duty. Mm-hmm. And so that was a surprise to me, I guess. Um, and and, a, and a, a happy surprise because it was something that Im- it inspired me to, to pursue those virtues. What about you? Um, I, I, I forgot about me for a second because what you were saying was so interesting. You're so self-forgetful. Real quick, real quick, I'll, a couple of things I want to say to yours. One, uh masculinity is a set of virtues characteristics that you can strengthen yourself in and grow in manhood you can't take off you are a man period uh and that's an important thing for little boys especially to hear i think that you are a man the question is not whether you're going to become a man the question is whether you're going to be a masculine man a good man a virtuous man a self-controlled man yeah. a man who masters his his self uh so you were always a man. What we want to grow in is masculinity, godly, holy masculinity. Yeah. The other thought I had, Wilson's good definition, I think it has the, it conveniently allows for all of the men that the Bible would call good men to be masculine. So mm-hmm. David was incredibly musically gifted and is near the top of any... And he also decapitated people. He giants. did. So you can do both. I, I, would, I would argue that you should do both. I have not decapitated anyone. And hopefully I'll never will. Bucket list. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you also have, so Moses uh, it seems to be, I mean, when you read the Pentateuch uh, and his one psalm, he doesn't exactly strike you as Jack Bauer. Uh, he's, he's, he's sensitive in some ways. Moses. Moses. Mm-hmm. And in the end, in Deuteronomy, he's described by God as the meekest man who ever lived. And yet Moses and David would have to be near the top of the list of how does the God of the 66 books of the Bible describe a good man? Moses and David would be near the top of the list. And they're not, you know, WWE wrestlers. So (laughs) I think what what Wilson's uh, definition allows for there is what does the Bible, what does the God who actually exists say masculinity is? I think, yeah, the glad assumption. Moses was Moses gladly assumed, cheerfully assumed, hopefully and joyfully assumed the responsibility of the covenant people of Israel. David gladly assumed the kingship and responsibility. You remember that story towards Mm -hmm. the end where the angel is slaying the people of Israel. And he says, what have these sheep done? I'm the one who sinned against you. 
That's a wonderful picture mm -hmm. of masculinity. And of course, ultimately, it's what our new covenant head, Jesus, did. He yeah. didn't sin, but he became sin for us, right? assuming responsibility for us. He didn't say, come on, God the Father, we should really just let this one go. He yeah. assumed responsibility mm -hmm. for his elect people's sins. Yeah, so. you mentioned Moses. Um, Moses didn't, he wasn't glad about it initially. Mm. And so you see that there was a, a development where God took a man who was a weak man mm -hmm. and his, the fact that he murdered somebody uh, out of a, out of a blind rage. Mm -hmm. um, you see that as like, that was a, that's not, Oh, what a man's man he mm -hmm. is. And it apparently is, hid the body. I mean, he was kind of, kind of yeah. cowardly about it. So that was, that was not, and, but I think in our caricature, we think, Oh, that's, that's just this very aggressive, mm -hmm. you know, even violent. And I'm like that, Godly men know when to be aggressive, right? And it is not—it is not the aggression itself that makes one a man. It is the the ability to show restraint, and that's the meekness. It's mm -hmm. strength under control. It is—it is the proper restraint and being aggressive when the when the time calls for it. Mm -hmm. And over time, Moses became that man, but initially he was a weaker man. He—he he was. He was very insecure yeah. about his speech. He's like, God, I, I, Lord, I can't speak. I'm, I'm, I'm not an eloquent guy. And, and right. eventually God relents and says, all right, fine, go grab your brother. Right. But, but over time, Moses did grow in that role. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a, you see God's grace that he will work through weak men and that man, being a masculine man, a godly man is something that is a, it is an intentional thing cultivated over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there are many areas of my life where I can see growth from my younger years, but I can also see I am, I am not the man I need to be. I am weak and I need to grow. I need to become more masculine, um, more strong, more um, take responsibility in areas where I have failed. Um, those, are, those are areas where I need to grow as a man. Yeah. What I think scripture is going to tell us to do as we want, as we seek to grow and become more masculine. And I'll get to my answer here in a second. But what, what I, I got to say this scripture is going to compel us to do that for the right reasons. So Jesus sought to be aggressive where needed because he wanted to glorify the father, glorify the Godhead and protect and preserve the sheep. So it, it was not self-seeking. He was not, yeah. he was not seeking to humiliate the Pharisees so that he would look smart and they would look dumb or um, seek to manifest his holiness so that everyone would say, wow, what a, what a really righteous and good man that is. It wasn't vain ambition, yeah, but it was to glorify God and to protect God's sheep. That's why you and I need to be seeking masculinity and growing mm -hmm. masculinity is to glorify God and protect his sheep. Yeah. Uh, and that's the big difference between the manosphere world and which we don't have to get into that or define that, but that, that subculture of American, uh, the American landscape right now that rightly sees masculinity as good and under assault, but wrongly, um, tries to embody masculinity. It's a performative thing. Yeah. i yeah. Watch me shoot things with my beard and smoke a cigar. Yeah. And shoot things with my beard. Does your beard... I'm not like not like not like the <laughs> load the beard with the ammunition. Shoot things while possessing a beard. Right, right. <laughs> um, okay. So, mine. Uh, the, as I grew in knowledge of Scripture and obedience to God, which 
you know, is, is an ongoing process. And if God preserves me for another 20 or 30 years, I'll, I'll look back at 37 year old Wade and think that you, there was so much you didn't know. But right now I would say that as I, as that process has gone on, confidence is the part that was most surprising to me. Mm. The fact that it is actually godly to be cheerfully, joyfully, uh, impervious yeah. to the assaults of the world, yeah. um, to be immovable and be glad about the fact that you're immovable. There is obviously self-confidence or vainglory, and those are sinful. I mean, I, you could be self-confident, I suppose, in a way that's not sinful, but as a lifestyle, self-confidence, reliance upon on me yeah. as my reason for being <clears throat> uh, stalwart. That is sinful. That is proud. But the word confidence is rooted in the Latin word fide for faith. Yeah. An actual godly confidence is, I know God made me. I know he made me this way. If I'm a Christian, I know I am blood-bought and my name is in the book of life and it cannot be removed. I know God runs the world, not the people I'm afraid of. And so I'm not going to be anxiously uh, or, you know, I used to be of the self-deprecating yeah. humorist mold, the John Stewart mold, uh, seeking the affirmation of others or the, the approval or the, uh, winning, winning their, uh, positive assessment of you through self-deprecation, yeah. like putting that to death because of a godly confidence and a desire to grow in godly confidence. That was surprising to me. But the more I, read the lives of godly yeah. men and read the bible it's yeah but, but i think that's a great point because i have i've experienced that personally to where we we value humility as christians as um one of the one of the highest of all virtues and there's an assumption that humility is a lack of confidence in anything it is doubting everything it's almost just like being the quintessential postmodern man mm -hmm. is humble which is like I don't know. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. Right. And I, th I think it's, it's an accurate self-assessment if you're not sure to say, I'm not sure about this. But it is not humility to doubt the things that are certain and that we should have great faith in. And it can be, it can be an act of masculine humility to assert with confidence things that we know to be true. God made this world. Jesus mm -hmm. Christ is his son. He died to save us from our sin. We can be saved through faith in him. Um, those are things that we would want to assert with confidence and it is not humble to speak like, well, I, you know, I, right. I, I think Jesus, I, I think he is probably the way to go. Mm. You know, that's, that might sound humble to modern ears, but that is neither masculine nor truly humble. No, no, no one would describe the angels in heaven as proud. They're not proud and yet they wouldn't waver on the truths of God or the Godhead. <laughs> I just imagine like, probably holy, probably right, exactly, holy, yeah, pr probably yeah. holy. Oh, yeah, you know? <laughs> I think yes, so. Last exactly. time I checked, he might be holy. <laughs> the, yeah, eternal skepticism of postmodernism is not humility. Uh, it's, uh, it's vanity. It, it, yeah. it's, it's seeking to adopt the posture of the day so that you can sit at the cool kid's table and that's not. Yeah. All right, well. That's our opening question and answer. Let's get to a, a taste of crazy. So this is the segment where we, as we're, as we're taking a look at a given topic, we see some credible source or sources in, in the world uh, that are not Christian and uh, examine what they are saying in opposition to the biblical worldview.
So as we record this in December of 2022, uh, a movie that I will not see, not out of protest, I'm not saying you can't see it, but I'm just telling you I'll never see it, called Avatar, The Way of Water, Avatar. has come out. I think it's already made a billion dollars and it's been out for like two weeks. Yeah. So uh, what, the first one was, was it like the highest? It was grossing? the highest grossing movie of all time. I think Avengers Endgame ended up passing it worldwide. And then they may have like re-released Avatar in some way to get it back to the top. <laughs> but this one, I think, had to make like two billion. This new one had to make something like two billion dollars. In other words, be one of the top five movies of yeah. all time to recoup what it what it cost. Wow. Uh, but it, it's going to, obviously. So as that's coming out, uh, we've got I, I'm pretty sure Cameron would call James Cameron, the director, um, would call himself an atheist. I think he used to go by the moniker of agnostic. But either way, a very liberal man, a worldly man, a secular man. Um, he has infused, I, I saw the first Avatar. It was obviously uh, sort of pagan earth worship. I don't know if you saw yeah, it. I saw it. It was preachy. Yeah, very preachy. And I'm not saying it. the movie had no artistic merit or anything, but I had no interest in ever watching it again once I saw that it's basically Fern Gully with tall blue people. Um, <laughs> I've not seen Fern Gully. But well... <laughs> Fern Gully is Avatar without tall blue people. So there okay. you go. Um, so James Cameron had some some interesting things uh, to say here. Here's from both of these quotes made the rounds over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I'll, I'll start with the one from The Hollywood Reporter. So Rebecca Keegan, uh, a reporter at The Hollywood Reporter, pretty longstanding uh, industry trade paper in, in Hollywood, uh, wrote this. On Titanic and the first Avatar, Cameron clashed with Fox execs over budgets and the film's potential to earn them back. But his relationship with Disney has so far been a smooth one. Cameron says, quote, maybe it's still a honeymoon phase. I don't know. We'll see. If the movie doesn't make money, then maybe the honeymoon's over. He cites his transparency, telling the studio early on if he feels something may shift in the schedule and says he respects Disney's marketing prowess. It may also be that his era of F-bomb-laden shouting matches with executives is behind him. Quote, a lot of things I did earlier I wouldn't do career-wise and just risks that you take as a wild, testosterone-poisoned young man. He declined to specify further, but, quote, I always think of testosterone as a toxin that you have to slowly work out of your system. Hmm. So, let's... Take just a second here and think this through. Here's a man who has made his millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions personally, by employing, probably largely, uh, his masculine traits. Taking command of a, yep. of a movie set, taking command of a writer's room. Um, and now that he has reached the peak of that success, looks back with some sort of remorse and says that, uh, I, wouldn't do, I won't do it that way going forward. And it seems to sort of imply he wishes he hadn't done it that way in the past because testosterone is a toxin hmm. that should be worked out of the system. Any thoughts or comments on? Well, you'd have to wonder, what does he associate with testosterone and how does he define masculinity? Because if he were to define masculinity biblically, there would be a, a taking dominion. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, it's a creative enterprise. It is a sense of we are building culture, civilization, and part of building civilization is telling the stories of a culture that reinforce the values of a culture. That that is dominion oriented work, which is a very masculine thing to do. So it is it is like saying that the very thing 
that fuels his entrepreneurial energy is mm. the very thing that he wants to rid his body of. Right. The fact that he is being quoted in the Hollywood Reporter is a testimony to the fact that he is a successful man. Right. And that to be a, to be successful in any industry, there there are masculine traits that tend to correlate with success. One of them is disagreeableness, mm -hmm. um, and of course, men can be agreeable, women can be disagreeable, but the disagreeableness is associated with a mass, more of a masculine frame. And being disagreeable means like, no, I'm not going to do it your way. I have my own vision. I'm going to do it this way because this way is right. This is better and make an argument for it, somehow win that argument. So he has mm -hmm. a creative vision for making a movie. Um, to make a movie that cost whatever you said that Avatar 2 cost. Yeah, billion plus, maybe $2 billion. That's an audacious sum mm -hmm. of money to say, we're going to spend something equivalent to the GDP of a small country yeah. on entertainment of tall blue people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the tall blue people version of Fern Gully. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's an audacious thing. and. That sort of audacity can be redeemed. It can be glorious and good. It could be somebody that says, I want to see something magnificent happen for the glory of God. Mm. The, the man Bill Bright comes to mind. Mm -hmm. He founded Crew. I used to be on staff with Crew. Um, Bill Bright um, was a man who had audacious ambition for the gospel. He wanted, like, he would always sign off his letters, yours for fulfilling the Great Commission in this generation. Mm. He wanted to not to not hit the grave until the great commission could be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, that's ambition that is good, godly, glorious. And it, and it is a men and women will both have ambition, but the, the masculine um, taking that responsibility to say, I'm going to climb this mountain. That is a, that could be a beautiful thing. So for Cameron, it, it just seems very disingenuous. Like he's like, he's uh, just posturing for this, Hollywood reporter, mm -hmm. Hollywood reporter, reporter. <laughs> but is is he trying to impress her? Is he trying to uh, to kind of show like, look, I've, I have, I have, um, I can be successful, and I can also be a. Um... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know the man's heart, but I find it hard to believe that if he actually, even if he actually thought so, that he would call estrogen a toxin. Like it seems oh, like he, never. he never. smells like we all do the way the wind is blowing. And when, especially when there's a lot of money at stake and a lot of your own uh, personal future at the stake, it's easier to go with the wind than against the wind. That's right. Our culture right now is very hostile to masculinity. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it just is easier to go yeah. ahead and jump on that train and move in that same yeah. direction. It, it just strikes me as weak and pandering yeah. to, to talk in an interview. Um, and to say the thing that you know will curry the most favor with the person you're talking to, um, making this sort of a political statement. Now, the, the, the other possibility, and, and this would be a scarier one because of his level of influence, uh, would be that he actually believes this. He actually believes that testosterone is a problem. He may actually believe it uh, because of what I'll read to you next. Okay. Um, so he also said, uh, this was in, uh, I believe, Van yeah, Variety. Um, so Variety did a, a piece on the movie itself, uh, less on Cameron's history, like The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, here's a, a little bit from that piece. It grabs you by the throat with story and characters that you love from the beginning, Rodriguez, who works for Variety, told Cameron about the film. 
This is the Variety Reporter. I was really taken by the fact that Neytiri, I'm guessing a character in the movie, hunts while she is pregnant. <laughs> and then you have one of the characters go into battle pregnant. Why wow. was that important? Cameron, quote, Everybody's always talking about female empowerment, but what is such a big part of a woman's life that we as men don't experience? And I thought, well, if you're really going to go all the way down the rabbit hole of female empowerment, let's have a female warrior who's six months pregnant go into battle. It doesn't happen in our society. This is still Cameron. Probably hasn't happened for hundreds of years. I just have to pause. Phenomenal historian here. Yeah, when, I mean, when is it? <laughs> phenomenal historian. Back to Cameron. But I guarantee you, back in the day, women had to fight for survival and protect their children. And it didn't matter if they were pregnant. And pregnant women are more capable of being a lot more athletic than we, as a culture, acknowledge. I thought, let's take the real boundaries off. To me, it was the last bastion that you don't see. Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, all these other amazing women, can't come up. But they're not moms, and they're not pregnant while they're fighting evil. Wow. You know, I've, I've always wondered, maybe that's, that's the thing that's missing from the women's 100-meter dash in the Olympics. Oh, yeah. Is we don't have enough pregnant women. That's right. If we had more pregnant women, then maybe we'd see even more records broken. That's we'd ab- see faster yeah, women. Absolutely. Because it's a... Let's, I mean, let's have a woman in the third <laughs> trimester sprint against Usain Bolt. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, why six months pregnant, though? Yeah. Like, if, if this is a true thing, then perhaps we should, perhaps it would be best for women to go into combat when they're eight or nine months pregnant mm-hmm. or even in labor. Mm-hmm. How giving about birth? I'm nursing right now and <laughs> I, will, I will hold the baby in the crook of my arm uh, while in the other hand I have a spear or a, you know, an assault rifle, that hand would... grenade. You would flamethrower. Just think of all the women and little girls that would be inspired, absolutely, and how empowered they mm. would feel to think mm. I have to nurse this baby. Yeah, probably have to change and switch, like switch sides halfway through. Yeah, uh, maybe change a diaper while uh, fending off villains. Mm-hmm. You know, stabbing you know bad guys with my sword absolutely. or shooting a machine gun. Just going to work um, so well, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's so absurd. I so I do yeah I do wonder is there actually something. Um, in, in him that that is like is there a screw loose here uh philosophically where he might actually hold ma- maleness uh in contempt i don't i don't want to psychologize the man but his his quotes are important these are uh major publications uh this movie is probably going to become the highest grossing movie of all time little girls are going to watch it uh teenagers are going to watch it 20 somethings are going to watch it and it's going to shape how they see the world and and it's got pregnant women fighting battles yeah so it's taking a masculine thing, something uh, that God has wired into men, the, the desire to overcome, to meet obstacles, uh, to when necessary be aggressive, physically aggressive. It's taken that, this movie, and uh, had women adopt it. Yeah. And it's going to become a part of our, our, our American mythos. And the more you see it on the screen, the more believable it seems mm-hmm. because it's su- it's such a fantastical thing that would uh, at this point it's inconceivable and inconceivable part of the pun uh but it's yes. a it's it's not something that would you would realistically expect to see women in combat that are pregnant obviously pregnant but 20 years ago we wouldn't have expected to see women in combat at all but yeah so it's a 
but but it's become believable because of how these things are depicted in our stories. Yeah. And you you see it in a movie and of course you have special effects. You can make you you can make this pregnant woman the most fierce warrior of you know the whole clan or whatever. Right. That's a it, it's something that it, it gains plausibility as it enters into our subconscious through story and narrative that does powerfully shape the way we perceive reality. Right. And reality is stubborn uh, and will not be bent by CGI. So right. what looks what looks realistic and plausible uh, on James Cameron's 3D movie screen is not going to be realistic and plausible once we, God forbid, go to war with Russia. Yeah. Or something <laughs> like that. Uh, real quick, just one more taste of crazy from USA Today, which used to be our nation's most read paper. I think now it's it's down the list a little bit, but still a pretty well, uh, well-regarded uh, news source here. Uh, this is from an article three years ago, January 10th, 2019. It begins, for the first time in its history, the American Psychological Association, the APA, mm -hmm. issued guidelines to help clinicians improve the health of boys and men, declaring aspects of, quote, traditional masculinity harmful. Here you state, the APA declared aspects of, quote, traditional masculinity harmful. The report, backed by more than 40 years of research. Four? Mm, mm, 40 years of... Oh, 40 40 years, 40 okay. years of research. Uh, triggered fierce backlash from conservative critics who uh. say American men are under attack. The APA defines traditional masculinity as, quote, a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement... Eschewal of the appearance of weakness and adventure, risk, and violence. So those are its traits that it now says are harmful. Okay. <laughs> the guidelines which were highlighted in the January issue of the APA's Monitor on Psychology magazine say the pressure boys, men, and feel to conform to certain aspects of traditional masculinity can lead to poor health outcomes. Jump up just a little bit here. Um. This is Jennifer Carlson, a sociology professor at the University of Arizona. She says, we often talk about gender in terms of women getting the short end of the stick. Well, masculinity isn't easy either. That's not your ticket to the good life. It isn't easy to be a man in the United States. Demands put on men, whether it's to be the protector, to be the provider, to respond to situations in certain ways, to prove yourself as a man, end up not just outwardly destructive, but also inwardly destructive. Hmm. Before I get your comment, just one more time. She says, masculinity, being a man, not the ticket to the good life. And then she says, demands to, quote, be the provider, respond to situations in certain ways, prove yourself as a man, are not just outwardly destructive, but inwardly destructive hmm. to the man himself. Yeah, the... The, the way that language is manipulated in those words, uh, in, the, in the thing that you read, there's a, you don't get to just declare something to be harmful and not demonstrate some actual harm. Mm -hmm. And the things that she described do not sound, it's not obvious that these are harmful things. Mm -hmm. To be protectors, to be providers, um, a, to be more prone, uh, less risk averse, let's say. Yeah. Um, is it like risk is not something that is inherently evil. There is a, people have different risk tolerance, but, but 
going, leaving your house and going to the grocery store and coming home, driving two miles away, there's a risk involved. Now it's a low risk. Most people tolerate the risk. And, but you would say that a person who is fearful of taking that risk, there's something wrong with that person. Correct. Um, so to associate risk just on the face of it with something harmful or bad or providing or protecting mm-hmm. or situational awareness um, it is, it is basically somebody saying, let me just think of a typical man, characteristics of a typical man, list them out and then label them just based on my own preferences or desires, label them harmful, say they're harmful for society, harmful for the individual and let that be. And because of the spirit of the age, which really has this, um, this distaste for all things that are truly masculine. It's an um, effeminate spirit of the age. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it is a, it's an, yeah, it's a feminist uh, spirit or effeminate and, you know, men hating their own masculinity, right. the self-loathing of their own masculinity. Um, it's going to play. Yeah. And it's going, because it's going to play, you can say it. And for anybody to challenge that assertion that she made would be deemed hateful, bigoted. Um, yeah. There's, there would be a backlash for doing so. So, so she could just declare these things. And they'll be taken at face value. So I appreciate uh, her not using loaded language, but actually using language we would use, um, where she said, um, seeking to be a provider, um, proving oneself to be a man. Like we we would use language like that. And I appreciate uh, prove yourself as a man, be the provider, respond to situations in certain ways. She's right. That is that is some of what we would say is actual masculinity. She says it's destructive, and for the sake of argument, I would actually grant the point. How so? It destroys often things that need to be destroyed. Yeah. When I was a boy, there were things in me that needed to be destroyed and other things that needed to be constructed in their place. Well, there are things in society that need to be destroyed. That's right. And so a protector, what does a protector do? Let's say you have a a fireman. You have a fire that is destroying one thing. And so to protect the thing being destroyed, you destroy the fire using some other, using water or whatever. And men are uniquely suited for that kind of work because physically they have their superior strength, speed, there's an aggression and they're like, it's a heroic thing for a man to, to risk his life for the sake of saving other people Mm -hmm. in a, in a house fire. And we'd say, is that risk that would, there would be a, that man would be a high T kind of guy, high testosterone kind of guy that would risk his life to save somebody. But it is men who their, their love of adventure, their desire to have meaning and purpose. And they find meaning and purpose in taking risk for the good of others, for the sake of protecting and providing and overcoming adversity and emerging victorious. Yeah. There are a few things that are as glorious for a man as to accomplish what I just described. And so if a man rushed into a house and it was on fire and he saved people and he put out the fire, you know, as part of a team of firefighters that put out the fire, that's not bad. No. Uh, and a man's anxiety, especially as a young man, needs to be destroyed. He needs to destroy it with faith. He needs to destroy it uh, with the awareness that God is his father. If he's a Christian, that he's been born again to be adopted into the family of God. A uh, man's laziness needs to be destroyed. Yeah. A man's uh, false self-esteem or false sense of self-worth needs to be destroyed and replaced yeah. with godly sense of who yeah, he take is. dominion over his own character. Right. So a lot of what our uh, 
what our culture would want to incubate and and sort of let grow is actually stuff that is is poisonous, is toxic, is need, yeah. it does need to be gotten rid of inside of a man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there we go. A few a few uh, tastes of of crazy as we look at our world's opposition to what will save it, which is masculinity. Any uh, we often take a look at the way words are manipulated. You you brought up a few things there. Any other uh, acts of sophistry, the cunning use of language to to move the ball further down the field that you got from uh, Cameron or from the USA Today article? No, I'd have to. I'd have to. I'm, I'm sure if we went through it line yeah. by line, you could find the way that words are are subtly employed to communicate something other than the truth, mm-hmm. but to not be outright lying yeah. um, in the most obvious way. Um, but I'd have to be looking at it. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes peeled over the next uh, few weeks and months for ways that the world is assaulting masculinity uh, in a subtle way. But okay, can you give us now that we're looking at God's masculinity, his goodness and masculinity, the masculine nature of redemption. Can you give us a lay of the land yeah. uh, and, and show us what's happening in the world around us? So here's a, a bumper sticker look at what we're going to unpack throughout the rest of this episode. I mean, the title is uh, a little provocative, um, How Masculinity Saved the World, mm. thanks to Wade, who mm. is always good at a turn of phrase. Mm. Um, and it's the, here's the, let me just give you the basic concept. Um, and we'll we'll tease the rest of this out with scripture and examples um, throughout the rest of this episode. But the basic idea is that God is um, eternal Father, um, and He reveals Himself in masculine terms. So God Himself is the eternal reality upon which every other reality is built. You did not put in a trigger warning before any of that. So just let me insert it here: trigger warning, because you're calling God masculine and Father. Okay. And trigger warning. Um, so. We, so trigger warning, is that just simply to say, hey, you might get triggered? I'm actually not even sure what it means, uh, <laughs> but I think it's something you're supposed to say when somebody might be offended. Okay. So I'm saying it here. Well, I, I would think, so if anybody's made it this far into this episode and mm. they're still with us, they either wholeheartedly agree and they're cheering us on, or they're mm. curious and they're open and they want to they want to learn, or they're just looking for something to get mad about. True story. So... So yeah, God God is the source of everything that is good and right. He's reality and truth. Um, so the way that God relates to his redeemed creation is as a husband relates to a bride. And so you see this explicitly in Ephesians 5, um, where Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. Um, you see this in Revelation 21, where redeemed creation is called New Jerusalem, which is also a bride adorned for her husband. So uh, the masculinity of God doesn't diminish women or femininity because it is for his bride that Christ gave his life. So femininity is a good and glorious thing in women. Um, And the masculinity of God doesn't diminish that. Um, And it doesn't exalt men to a higher station than women because men and women both comprise the bride of Christ together equally. So Galatians 3.28. so in God's household, masculine and feminine are distinct from one another. They're not the same. And the distinctness is good. It's glorious. And the, the distinctness also is meant or designed in such a way that it is meant to be uh, united in this joyful harmony. Uh, so as Christ is united to his bride, they are, they are joined. They're, they're one. Um, that is 
that relational pattern of Christ and the church is written into the created order as husband and wife. Uh, man and woman are unique. They're separate. There's, there are things that are true of masculine, uh, of man who is masculine and mm-hmm. of woman who is feminine. And that those distinctions are good. They are beneficial, uh, mutually beneficial for one another. Um, but they, they're also distinct. So that's a, that's a bumper sticker version. And what I want to show you as we approach the end of the episode is how redemption itself is a masculine thing. It's a, it's a masculine work. Redemption meaning God's plan of rescuing and remaking. That's right. All of creation. That's right. Okay. So the whole storyline of the Bible you're going to show us is, uh, is is masculine in that sense. It is it is a a masculine hero, a masculine savior, a masculine protagonist doing yes. the saving. Yeah. Uh so so in a sense, all of creation is feminine. Am I hearing you right? In a sense, all of creation is feminine. Um so I I I'm I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it. It okay. might be. In my book, I I backed away from saying it that way. Um it's a comic book, right? so this is the running gag whenever i mention the book that i'm writing um well actually the book is written it's being edited now but they're putting those little squares in where all the (laughs) it's a graphic novel yeah the speaking bubbles no it's but it's a but i i was careful to i don't know that i have sufficient biblical warrant to say creation is feminine i i'm inclined to think that that's true um but i think what i can say at least this much is that the way God relates to creation is in a masculine feminine um, relational mm. pattern. So God is head of all creation. So you see as men, how we play into this. Mm-hmm. So as men, we are part of the created order. And as men, we are part, we participate in the church, which is the bride of Christ. So in that sense, we relate to God according to a feminine pattern. Uh, Jesus is our Lord. He is mm-hmm. our bridegroom. Now, I am not personally the bride of Christ because right. I'm not a woman. Um, and the bride of Christ is a collective. It's the whole church. But the way that the church submits to Christ, our uh, the church's Savior, that's a feminine way that uh, we relate. And that is written into the created order. In Ephesians 5, you see that as wife submits to her husband, or excuse me, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Mm. So I'd say at least that creation itself renewed, redeemed the new Jerusalem, everything will be in submission to Christ. And in that way, there is a, if it is a, it is a feminine relational pattern. And there, there are clues to this in scripture um, that are, I don't know, we probably won't get into it in this episode, but there are clues to that. So let me just give you one quick example is the earth. Um, the earth is like a mother. Um, and we'll do an episode. We've got one. Avatar planned. definitely agrees with that. <laughs> like mother earth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, like with something like Avatar, it's not as though everything that it represents is completely false, 100% out of... It wouldn't even be intelligible if that were the case. Right. Well, often what happens is things that are good and true are picked up on and distorted in in ways that uh, undermine the truth that is actually there. It's what Satan did. The the best lies have truth in them. Yeah. Yeah, The best lies are mostly true. Right. (laughs) Right. But the earth is like a mother. And so you think of, um, I think it's Psalm 139, where he said, uh, you knitted me together um, in my mother's womb. Mm -hmm. And then later in the same Psalm, he said, when I was uh, woven in the depths of the earth, something Mm -hmm. like that. 
he he likens the um being in his mother's womb as being in the earth mm. and as man came from the earth god right. formed him from the dust of the ground um the dust of the ground so it's it, it was the the materials from which God formed man. Which God was not bound to do. He created plenty of things out of nothing. Correct. But he opted to create. Right. Man Adam was not created Earth. ex nihilo. Right. God created light ex nihilo. It seems to me like he created uh, quite a few other things in Genesis 1 ex nihilo. But Adam, he opted to create yeah. from the dust. Yeah. That was his choice. So there's a connection uh, that man has with the As Earth. As though Earth is and I don't want to sound too new agey here, but as though earth is in some sense sort of a womb yeah. uh, for God's people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so in some sense, uh, God, we are in a story in which God is the masculine protagonist. And I don't mean, I, I mean, literally God is telling a story with creation. I'm not speaking purely metaphorically. I mean, we are not in a random set of disconnected events that just right. happen. History is pointed somewhere. It is all about Jesus Christ. And within the story that we're all in, God is the masculine hero and protagonist. Yes. And we are, in some sense, the, the rescued damsel in distress, for yeah. lack of a better. Yeah, because of our sin. Right. Yeah, we were enslaved to sin. Um, sin, Satan, death. Yeah. Uh, the great enemies of mankind. And we are under, we're imprisoned in, under those things until our Redeemer rescues them, re rescues us from those things. Right. And that, uh, the fact that that is true is offensive to the 21st century ear, but it does certainly jive with the tenor of scripture and the examples that it gives of, of good men. Yeah. Um, and the, and the imagery that God often uses for himself. Yeah. Uh, so in Ezekiel, he calls him, you know, he makes very explicit that he is a husband who was cheated against by his wife. Right. Uh, yeah. that kind of imagery becomes a lot more understandable and intelligible once you realize, oh, like he really is masculine in some actual way. Yeah. And he's not male. God does not have yeah, we'll male physical features, but yeah. he, he is masculine. Right. And the church is feminine. That's good. So that's the lay of the land. Uh, can we, can, can you take us uh, into a deeper dive of scripture's yeah, I, teaching? So I've got a few points here that I, I, I try to break these up into um, assertions or um, concepts that I'll, I'll uh, just unpack these briefly we didn't but, talk about this but i may interject as a feminist i may just pretend to be like a feminist don't do it man okay, all right. I'll, I'll throw this book across the room okay again. all right i won't <laughs> all right uh, here's the first point the cre the categories of masculine and feminine have meaning beyond biology and reproduction okay so the 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 undeniable reality of male and female is that that is that, that is the means through which <laughs> at least until until there's some laboratory and mm. uh artificial wombs that can be created mm -hmm. um we're working on it but that's the there's meaning beyond the biological so we're embodied souls um god created sex god created human sexuality it is good we see this in the creation account every day it was good so god is not ashamed of sexuality invented it and he invented it to reveal something about himself and so to, to learn about sex, we, we do need to look at God himself, who, who is telling us things about himself through the way he has designed sexuality. And this is important because masculinity and femininity are not these fluid social constructs that can be changed as we see fit. Mm. Obviously, there's going to be, in any given man or woman, 
there's going to be things that you might associate, uh, well, that man has these traits that, you know, seem more feminine or something like that. But the, on the whole, these are not, these are not interchangeable or fluid um, social constructs that can be changed. So they, there can be a variety of ways that they're expressed, different cultures, that's fine. But nevertheless, they're grounded in something eternal. And the thing they're grounded in is God himself who created it to reveal himself. So it is not good when I see the boy wearing the uh, pixie costume in the Kit Kat commercial. Or uh, <laughs> I have not seen. That okay, commercial. yeah, it's it's great. It's great. No, but so so if I see if you know I've got uh, people I'm thinking of right now in in my real uh, circle, a little boy is encouraged to paint his nails, or um, a little girl is encouraged to uh, be that heroic feminine character from the hunger games and, and kill people with katniss everdeen right yeah okay that's that's very disconcerting that you know the name of the i watch the movies okay i did not uh, read the books but so that is help me out here that is not okay that is not something we should encourage that's not something we should get behind well think of it this way like let's say you have a boy in scotland mm -hmm. and um you know his dad dresses him in traditional scottish gear so he wears a kilt mm. um, in Scotland, he is wearing something that is known to be part of the masculine uniform. And so he is wearing something that men traditionally are known to wear. In, in America, if a boy wore something that looked like a kilt, but let's say wore a skirt, he is not wearing something that men in America wear. He is rebelling against the masculine uniform, or at least he is declaring some independence from it. And so he's announcing something. It's like, I'm I want to distance myself from what is associated with masculinity, and I want to associate myself with something that is associated with femininity. Um, so in that sense, there is a, you, we have to take the cultural factors into account. Okay. But if there is a, if there is something that is an intentional deviation from what is acceptable convention, and that there, there is some cultural uh, there, there's some cultural factors that we have to account for. Nevertheless, if a boy were to paint his fingernails pink, we would think, you know, uh, what dad would mm -hmm. let his boy do that? You know, and we should think that, correct? I think that's right. Yes, yes, I do yes that is right. Like to, uh, it it is it is good for a father to want his boys to look like boys yeah. and his girls to look like girls. Yeah, four or five years ago when Wonder Woman came out, uh, I remember, so I wrote a, I've been keeping a pastoral blog for about 10 or 12 years. Um, I wrote a post on why uh, it was a problem, why we shouldn't watch it, and uh, why my kids will never watch it. And it was essentially what you're getting at. Yes, that uh, to it is not good or godly for us to normalize a grown woman saving a grown man and carrying him out off the battlefield in her arms. Mm-hmm. That is not a good normalization to occur. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. If, if let's say you have a nurse who is a, let's say she's some, in some kind of a field medic and happens mm -hmm. to be uh, in an environment where it's like, that's a, that's a feminine thing to do because it's life-giving. Right. Um, she, is, she is nurturing, caring for those that are, that are in need. Um, but to be, to be the warrior right. princess, that is life-taking, not life-giving. And it is something that is unnatural uh, for 
for femininity. Yeah, and I'll go one step further than probably you want to go, and then I'll I'll back off so you can keep going. I'll, I'll say it is it is ungodly and unhealthy that our society has normalized women having guns in any capacity and shooting people. We should not have that. That is not a good normalization that has taken place. Well, when you say normalization, um, normalization is different than an instance, right? So, is so there let's a, say let's say a woman has a she keeps a pistol in her purse. Yes. And there's an uh, an attacker or an intruder that comes into her house and she pulls out the gun and in her own self-defense, she shoots the intruder. Yeah. Do you have a problem with that? No. Yeah, I don't either. Um, the Bible has a very different set of uh, sarcastic uses about women soldiers. So in the, I can think of at least one, and I think there are two instances where God himself uh, says something along the lines of, your soldiers are like women, yeah. as he mocks a pagan nation or mocks a... a an army that he is uh, holding in derision. And if, if God does that, then that's telling us something that yeah. comports with reality and the rest of scripture, which is that it is not good or proper for a society to give women guns and spears and say, go fight our battles. Yeah. And it's not good or proper for women to want to do it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, let's move on to the second one. Uh, God's being is always described in masculine terms. So whenever scripture describes God's being, it uses masculine terms. Whenever scripture describes God's actions, there are a variety of words, metaphors, and images that can be used. So you have the way, God, the, way the Bible describes God's being and the way God, the Bible describes God's actions. So back with God's being, the words are Father, Son, Spirit, Holy Spirit. Um, and whenever they're referred to, it's always masculine language. And so Holy Spirit, the, the pronoun would be he mm -hmm. describing the Holy Spirit. Um, and now some people would say, like, well, God, God is described as a mother. God's described in feminine words. And like, that's true whenever the actions of God are being described, because oftentimes there are things that God will do that could be associated with motherliness. Um, but that is not a description of God's being. Who God Also is. worth pointing out, it's incredibly infrequent. Yeah, it is, not the, it is not the norm. But the infrequency of it is notable that like when it does happen it's highlighting something unique about mm -hmm. god that stands out everybody brings up the mother hen one for a reason because yeah. it's like the only one you can think of right so like the one you, you the, the the example that you're citing there um do you like how often i wanted to gather your yes. uh your chicks under my or something like that yeah Jesus so oh jerusalem it. jerusalem yeah. that yeah. text um he is he is speaking of something that he wish, wishes to do, which is to gather together his people in a in a motherly way. Um, but that is describing an action. Jesus does not say, "I am the mother hen right. who has come to gather my chicks under my wing." That his being is not described that way. So the uh, those those images they 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 don't diminish the masculinity of God, but rather they highlight it. So another example, let's just say in, in, our, in our time, if you have a mother cuddling an infant child, nobody is going to really, it's not all that remarkable because women are naturally attuned to nurturing. Mm -hmm. Women are going to cuddle and nurture their infant child. But let's say you have this uh, big ox of a dude mm -hmm. uh, who takes this little tiny baby in his arms and it's, the babies are sort of swallowed up in this massive man. Somebody might look at that and see something unusual and special mm -hmm. and say, look, he's tender with that child like a mother. Mm -hmm. And the tenderness does not mean, oh, he's weak, he's, 
he's uh, not masculine. Rather, it's a it's a way of highlighting his masculinity, his strength, his 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 size. And so that's that's the way often whenever there are these feminine motherly images for God used in scripture, it does not diminish the the masculinity of God. It, rather it is it is setting it apart as this is how unusual it is that a God that we know in this way would do something so tender that that it shows like a range of 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 God's love and care for his people. So the point here is this that masculine is a true description of who God is. And God tells us, he reveals himself that way and he tells us to think of him that way. So I want to read you a quote. Um, there's this book by William and Barbara Mauser. Um, the book is called The Story of Sex in Scripture. Um, I think it's self-published. Whenever I, I bought my copy, I had to go to their website. Mm. And even on their website, I had to dig around to mm. find it. Um, so it's not an easy book to get your hands on, but it is wonderful, wonderful little book. And here's a quote when they're describing the masculine language used to describe God in Scripture. They say, Christ is a son, but never a daughter. Christ is a brother, never a sister. Christ is a bridegroom, never a bride. Christ is a husband, never a wife. Christ is a king, never a queen. Yeah, so obviously what we're saying here is that masculinity is holy and femininity is wicked. <laughs> and that's why men are godlier than women. Um, Clearly, that's not what we're saying. Okay, well, then I'm going to have to rethink some things here real quick. No, obviously, it's not what we're saying. Um, the fact that God is masculine does, and, and I, wanna, I always want to be careful knowing that we're on holy ground. I, when, when two human men presume to speak about the triune God who we will give an account to for every word that comes out of our mouth and who's upholding the universe right now by the word of his power and could snuff me out without breaking a sweat. I want to make sure that I'm careful and that I'm speaking within the bounds of scripture yeah. and with necessary humility. That being said, I think the Bible absolutely gives me this warrant. God would never have created Eve first. He is communicating something about reality from the very first week of creation. Yeah. He created Adam first and then made Eve to be his helper from his side, not from the earth. He did not create Eve from the same dust from which he created Adam. He created yeah. Adam from the dust and then Eve from his side. And in that, and in the rest of Scripture, Genesis on, all the way through to Revelation, where he is pictured himself as the groom, like you just said, and we are pictured as the bride. He is communicating something about himself that is masculine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a quick point on that. The, the, the fact that God created them uh, at, on two different occasions, mm. um, that is, that is not, that's not nothing. You know, God could have created them simultaneously, both from the dust, but he didn't. He created right. them at different times and the way that that story is unfolded and we'll do this in another episode but the way that that story unfolds in Genesis it is it is telling us something important about who God is and it is telling us a story about sex sexuality yeah. man has a unique relationship to the ground mm. because he came from the ground woman has a unique relationship to the man because she came from the man that's right and those those things are at least indicators of what their vocations will be oriented towards. And what their sin tendencies 
yes. will orient themselves against. Yes. So Adam was not made to be Eve's helper. Eve was made to be his. And yet she is going to seek to rule over him, to undermine yeah. her own, the very thing that God created her to do. The actual thing he created her to be was Adam's helper. It is not good for man to be alone. He has been given this task to take dominion and to keep this garden and to name the animals. It is not good. The only thing I've said is not good is him being alone. So I will make a helper fit for him yeah. from his side. She, in Genesis 3, is going to seek to undermine that very purpose of her being, yeah. to be her husband's helper and seek to rule over him. Uh, and the fact that she's the helper, that does indicate something about their relationship. Yeah. That he has, he has a... Uh, a headship yeah. or authority that, or a leadership, um, whichever way you'd want to describe it, those, you, that is, um, he is, he is, he has a calling that he is going to fulfill. He is to set the trajectory of their household, of their marriage, of the work in the garden. He is to orient that whole enterprise yeah. in its work of making worshipers yeah. out of the earth. Now I'm aware that there are scriptures that speak of God as helper. And that will be, that does not undermine the point that I'm making here. We'll have to unpack that in a different episode, but God, um, God can be helper. And that, that is an indicator of her, her equality in terms of her value. And right. The fact that she would be described in the same words that God is described in. But when it comes to their particular relationship, she is obligated by God mm -hmm. to help Adam. Whereas God is not obligated to help anyone. No. God does it because he graciously chooses to do so. Um, so there is, a, there is a covenant responsibility between the man and the woman where his covenant responsibility is as her head and leader. Her covenant responsibility is as his helper. That does not diminish her. That does not exalt him over her in some uh, ontologically superior way. But that does, that does show the, the shape of their relationship. And it was divinely ordained from the beginning in the created order. Before Genesis 3. Before the before fall. Before the sin. Yeah. Equality right. of essence does not mean equality of function. That's right. Good way to put it. Yeah. My, my children and I both have equal essence. Ontologically, before God, we are human beings. We both have more worth than a hummingbird or a pebble or a squid. However, we do not have equal function. So you don't mutually submit to your children? No. Don't you value them? Don't you love your children, Wade? So for those who are unfamiliar, this has come up in the last 10 years or so in a debate about the Trinity and the eternal subordination of the Son. Without wading too deeply into that, I do think it is, it is fairly obvious throughout Christian history that there has been some level of agreement that God the Son, who is God, he himself does submit to the Father who is God, and that from that we can, at, at the very least, glean that it is possible to be equal in essence and yet to still be obligated to submit. Yeah. Well, the, the nature of that debate, which I don't want to get into here, but there's a, a question of, is that submission of the Son, is that eternal? Eternal, yeah. Does it antedate the created order of the Incarnation? Um, and what is the nature of that submission? Does Jesus have a different will that is different from the Father? Right. But he, it's like, well, okay, Father, I guess I'll go to the cross the way you want. It's like that. Those are complicated issues, and frankly, that's I, I don't I don't have a position on 
on those things. Mm. Um, that's been, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, and because of the controversy, I've, I've, I'm very reticent to, there are good guys on both sides of that particular controversy. The only reason I'm bringing it up is in case people are aware of it. I don't want them to think that it has no bearing in this particular debate. And also for those people who don't know about it, just be aware there is a category within Christendom, within Christian history for saying two beings, two things, two qualities, two personalities can be equal in essence while one submits to the other. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the third point. God is masculine, not male. You made this, you pointed this out earlier. Uh, and this is a short one, but sex is part of creation. Uh, so male and female, um, God, those are part of the, a part of creation and God created sex and sexuality. So male and female, that's part of the created order. God himself is not male because maleness is a physical distinction and God is spirit. Mm. So uh, John 4, 24, um, this is where Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So whenever Jesus is describing God and his essence, he's saying he is spirit. So maleness is a physical distinction and God is not physical. So the father, God, is spirit. He does not have a body and thus is not male. And yet, he describes himself in masculine terms because he is a masculine God. So most obviously, he is a father. He is not described as mother. He's never called mother. And the question that we're getting at in this podcast is what does that mean? What does the masculinity of God mean? Why is it significant? Now, the fatherhood of God, that's a, we'll get into that. That's a, we have an episode planned that's on fatherhood and motherhood. But um, why, what is the significance of the masculinity of God? Mm. Um, and so to, to address that, we need to look to the incarnation for answers. Before I, before I do that, do you have any? Yeah, let me ask a question. You're saying it, it matters. Uh, we want to have this discussion about God's masculinity because it, it should be telling us something. Question for you. Would this podcast, this discussion have been necessary in 1822 or 1922? Is there a particular reason why you want to talk about God's masculinity and what it means for us today? I'm sure there were some, there were some people out there that would call themselves Christians and think of God as mother or something like that in 1922, certainly 1922, uh, I would imagine 1822, but it is something that is the unique challenge of our day, where something that was unquestioned orthodoxy for 2,000 years mm. has suddenly become not only called into question, but even very controversial to hold the views that we're describing. Even though what, we're, what Wade and I are describing are something that all the church fathers would, right. have, would have agreed to, the reformers would have agreed to, things that were not, not debatable yeah. until the last 50 years or so in any significant way. Um, I think it's fair to say that with some explanation of what I mean, I could say I, I could have said God is masculine to Augustine, Tertullian, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Owen, even yeah. Thomas Aquinas, Roman Catholic as he is, and none of them would have batted an eye. I say God is masculine to a large portion of Big Eva today, and I think at the very least, there is a discomfort. Right. Palms that, are sweating. Yeah. Because they, there's there's this innate sense that ooh there's something is a little controversial here. Mm -hmm. Somebody might get upset. Somebody might get offended. Um, 
And that's why we do this. We do this podcast so we can talk about things that are um, that I think are helpful to you uh, as the listener, because we're re-articulating for a modern audience in in terms and taking into account our modern context, right. which hates the things that we're describing. Yeah. If you said God is feminine, our current, the current we're all swimming in, would barely bat an eye. Yeah. A lot of people would be like, ooh. That's, that's good. It's ooh, provocative. God, you're, yeah. Even in evangelical you're, you're, circles, you're you might pushing hear, the boundary. Yeah. Good for you. You know, like. Uh, but if you say God is masculine, which is patently obvious and, you know, congruent with scripture, all of a sudden everybody's nervous that we need to be aware of why and, and we need to take account of the, the fact that that is, that, is a, that is a reality that we're in yeah. and how to navigate through it and how to, how to call it out and not be swept away by it. That's right. All right. So here's, um, here's the fourth point. Um, the incarnation of Christ was masculine. Mm. Now, the... The the points that I have remaining here are, um, they're just the it, hang with me. I'll try to, uh, and I'm I'm not speaking to you, Wade. I'm speaking just to everyone who happens to be listening. I, I happen to be literally hanging as we record this. I'm just doing pull ups <laughs> throughout the whole thing. It's hang with because like there's, um, each each of these points builds on the previous. So I want to read to you. This is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Um, about the incarnation, and it says this, the doctrine expressed in the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon. So these are the two, mm-hmm. um, two of the ecumenical creeds. Yep. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten before all the ages and of one substance with the Father, mm-hmm. meaning he and the Father are one. That man, Christ, was made flesh through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, making him truly God, and truly human, possessing two natures, which are not confused, changed, divided, or separated. Right. That's the doctrine of the incarnation as it is expressed uh, from the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon. Um, scripture, I'll give you one example here. Um, he, this is Galatians, rather. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, which says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Mm A couple of observations there. First, the incarnation took place in a male body. God sent forth his son, not his daughter. He sent forth his son. So God designed the male body to be the physical expression of masculinity. So whatever masculinity is, whatever it is within God himself, God designed it in such a way that it could be accurately and physically represented in the male body. Yeah, but Michael, he was just making an accommodation to a patriarchal age. Well. They wouldn't have received a, a woman savior, right? That's yes, the real, they would have. That's the, that's the real In reason, the pagan right? world, they did not have a problem worshiping feminine deities. Yeah, not to mention uh, Jesus had apparently very few qualms about offending people. <laughs> so whenever somebody says that, well, God had to choose 12 male apostles and he yeah. had to appear as a, because, you know, he wasn't going to upset the, the age. Bro, <laughs> he's upsetting the age all over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> That's right. All right. So the first observation, the incarnation took place in a male body. Here's the other one. The incarnation was aimed at redemption. Okay. So I'll, the text again, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, male body, male human, born of a woman, born under the law, under the law to redeem those who were under the law mm. 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the incarnation took place as a necessary step towards the redemption that was ultimately accomplished. And he calls that to redeem those who are under the law, and he also calls it uh, adoption as sons. Mm -hmm. So once the incarnation took place, um, the incarnation is a permanent reality. Um, this is not something I hear talked about a lot. In, um, Jesus still has a body. That's correct. And now, will always have a body. It is, uh, it, it's, it's hard for us to fathom, but it is something that, that we see that it's not as though... That's the reason why the ascension of Christ at the end of the Gospels is an important, uh, important thing. Jesus did not say, okay, guys, I did my, mm-hmm. my incarnation thing is over. You can kill me now and bury me and my spirit will go off to heaven. That didn't happen. His spirit did not just dissipate, right. um, you know, like he's Captain Kirk getting uh, beamed to whatever the heavenly realm is. His body is lifted into the heavens, and they stood there on the earth watching him ascend into the sky. Yeah. Um, he tells Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Correct. Do not cling to me. This body is me, this resurrected body in which there's a hole, which I'll tell Thomas to stick his hand. Yeah. This resurrected body is me. And I have not yet ascended to my father. Yes. And that's what he means when he said that to Mary. That's, that, uh, that's very good. Very good point. So here's Hebrews 7, 24, 25. Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able, able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Mm. So the point the author of Hebrews is making here is that Jesus's priesthood is permanent. And his priesthood, the site of his priesthood is his body, which was crucified, and it was buried, and then it was raised again. So the sacrifice of God, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, took place at the physical site of the body of Christ. So um, when he ascended at, at his ministry, then he, can, he ascended in order to perpetuate his priesthood forever. So there is this, this permanent intercession that Christ makes for his people. And by that intercession, that means that his physical body, the life of his physical body, is what enables the ongoing life of the church. Um, so let, let me summarize where we are so far. I know you're not, but so we got a masculine God sends forth his masculine son to incarnate a masculine male body with a human male nature yes. that is, that, that is his human nature being male his divine nature being masculine. And that masculine incarnate God the Son then dies and is raised and now is a masculine priest to intercede for us to the end of time. Yes. Okay. Now, I'm going to make the point in a moment that it must have been masculine. Okay. Um, but we're not there yet. But the... The point that you're making is 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 correct. Jesus Christ was the he was uh, to to quote Doug Wilson's definition again. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the glad the glad assumption, assumption of sacrifice. Is that right? The, the glad assumption of uh, sacrificial, sacrificial responsibility. Yes. I think that's what Christ did for us. Mm-hmm. Um, he for the joy set before him, Hebrews twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus gladly endured those things because he was taking responsibility for those whom he came to save. Mm -hmm. Um, And he did that at sacrificially. So 
as men, we would say that is the perfect embodiment of masculinity. Which is why it is effeminate to point the finger away from yourself. Like right. blame shifting yes. and... Yes. And, uh, and yeah. we all, most men instinctively know that. We instinctively respect less men who we see do that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it's important here that, that to recognize that this is a masculine work. Jesus was not feminine. He was not a female, right? He's a son, mm. not a daughter. He's a brother, not a sister. The question then is why? Why does that matter? Does it matter that Jesus was born male and not female? So, um, when the in, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians four four, when God would send forth His, um, the second person of the Trinity, mm-hmm. did God have to incarnate that that member of the Trinity in a male body? Mm-hmm. Could God? Could the second person of the Trinity have been a girl? Or were, were there equally, two equally suitable bodies, genders, that God could have been incarnated in? So it could have been a coin flip, and it just happened to come up heads, and so Christ became a male. You know, you have the, the Christmas verse, Isaiah 9-7. I just preached on this for our Christmas service uh, this, this uh, last week. It says, unto us a child is born. Could it say, unto us a daughter is given? So, and, and I'm, I want, I'm saying, I'm belaboring this not to be provocative or irreverent. And as you said earlier, it's like we are treading on holy ground. Um, so there, this, I'm not saying this just to, to trigger anyone, but it, these are questions that need to be answered in our day because these are the, this is where the battle rages. Yeah. But could Jesus Christ have actually been Jessica Christ? Could it have been female? Could she have been crucified for our sins and raised on the third day? And even saying these things, I feel I feel uncomfortable saying it because I don't. You should. So should I, I. I don't mean anything irreverent toward our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's nothing, no intent to denigrate His glory. But I say it because hopefully there's something within all of us that recoils when we hear those kind of words, and hopefully the Spirit cries out within us that would say that's blasphemous. Right. And the question then is, why is it blasphemous? It is not blasphemous because femininity is wicked, correct? Can you, oh, yeah, it, right. We're it, not we're not recoiling because femininity itself is somehow dirty or or subhuman. Correct, absolutely. But we are recoiling correctly, appropriately. Yes. When, when you say, unto us a daughter is born, couldn't Isaiah 9 have said that? We should, those of us who know God and know his word, you're, you're saying we should recoil. Yeah, something should react. Well, the uh, I just thought of this, the book, The Shack, mm-hmm. you know, that was yeah. famous, about, what, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah, uh, never read it, but I know that it had the, uh, was it the, was it God appearing as an older woman? So you had, um, I mean, it was like the United Nations of Trinity. It yeah. was like this diversity poster right. where I think the spirit was an Asian woman. Mm. Um, then you had the son, which was a man. And then you had the God, the father was uh, a woman. Uh, I think it was like a black woman and they called her, is it Papa or something? I don't, I don't remember. I'm just, this is, these are vague recollections, but I know um, that at least one, if not two characters in the book representing the Trinity were female. Yeah. And God knows how to present himself and knows his own essence better than we do. And nowhere in scripture has he given us license to refer to him as mother. Right. He decides who he is and how we are to talk to him. Yeah. Not 
William Young or whatever his name was who writes The Shack. Not me, not you. That's right. Well, in our day, Christians are prone to see differences between men and women as merely biological, incidental, right. and insignificant. Arbitrary. Right. They mean There's no meaning other than these body parts need to copulate to get new babies. Right. But other than that, there's no meaning. We're androgynous. You know, someday in, someday in heaven, you're not even going to be able to tell. <laughs> that's right. you know, we'll all sing just in the middle of the what you, is it tenor that's kind of in the middle of the range oh right? yeah we'll yep. all we'll all sing with just you know we'll be neutral heavenly <laughs> units of worship <laughs> units of worship yes. that sounds horrible yeah, it does absolutely it sounds horrible <laughs> it's supposed to god knows what he's doing he made bass and soprano for a reason yeah well what we need to see is that god created sexuality to reveal something about himself yeah he's like sexuality, it, it does tell a story about God and redemption, about Christ and his bride. And sexuality is an integral part of securing our redemption. And if we understand the theological significance of the fact that Jesus could only have been male, then it will, it will deepen our appreciation for what God accomplished for us and how we should respond as men and women. So the question why did Jesus have to be male? That's my next point. Do you want me, do you want to say anything before I hit it? Uh, just maybe quickly summarizing your position, which I agree with, is that the fact that Jesus, that God the Son, I, I have no problem calling him God the Son even before the incarnation, but I know that. Oh, I, I don't either. Uh, some people who don't like the eternal subordination of the Son, they might, they might, you know. I was speaking that way for the sake of highlighting the potentiality gotcha. that we were exploring, the gotcha. hypothetical. Gotcha. Okay. So if, uh, so God, the son is masculine. You're saying correctly that that is true. God, the incarnate son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is male and masculine in his human nature. That is necessary and true. And you're saying that, uh, that is not a mystery to which we should just, Hey, I, I can't understand it. I don't know why God did it that way, but you're saying, no, we are actually supposed to learn yes. something. Your position is we are supposed to learn something from that it should deepen our worship we we are actually supposed to have some understanding of why it was necessary yes that's your position that is my position yeah mine too that's good and, and the scripture well we'll get into this um the scripture does teach about it explicitly um there are some verses of the bible that are in the penalty box um if you know mm -hmm. what i'm talking about in hockey mm -hmm. uh if you have somebody that misbehaves, mm -hmm. you take that player off the rink yep. and you stick him in the penalty box. It's like he's not allowed to play. There are Bible verses that are in the penalty box because they don't play nice with modern feminism. The whole head covering section in First Corinthians, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah, that's the one that comes to my mind. <laughs> well, the other one I have in mind is also it's it's the same text just earlier. Okay. Um, and yeah, so here's my the the fifth point in this series that I'm going through is headship is a masculine calling. Okay. Now where I'm headed with this is headship is a necessary component of redemption, but that's, that's, I'll get that in a moment. Right now, headship is a masculine calling. So here's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, mm -hmm. taking it out of the penalty box. Paul says, I want you to understand, I, even just, I got to pause there. Paul is saying, I want you to understand. Yeah. So it's like, I don't want you in the dark on this. I want you to comprehend something that is valuable for you to know. I want you to take this medicine, take this vitamin. I want you, this is good for you, what I'm yes. about to. So here's what Paul wants us to understand, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Um, 
there's a lot we could say there and there I'm sure we could we could spend hours and hours just talking about all the interpretations of this verse. Mm. Uh, I'll make a couple of comments here because the point that I'm wanting to get at is headship. The ESV translation of this text is not very literal. The Greek literally reads, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So the ESV interprets the words woman and man as wife and husband. Mm. So it, it assumes a marriage relationship. Um, and so there's uh, the part of headship that I want to get at here is the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. It's, it's the idea of headship. And the doctrine of headship is important because it reveals something about the nature of masculinity and femininity. So it's a relational pattern that God built into the created order. We've covered this already. And the relational pattern is a reflection of how God relates to all creation. So just to review, in creation, God has authority over all things as the creator. God delegated a measure of his authority to Adam as the head over the earth. Uh, and God commanded Adam to establish a household with Eve. So that's the creation mm -hmm. mandate, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. And they would rule over creation together. So that's a pattern for rule and authority. So the, the headship then is where we see sex is where, sex is where households come from. So the way that they would exercise dominion is by establishing a household and the means through which that would come about is sex. Adam and Eve would have sex with his wife. So you have husband, wife, children. And then every household has a head who takes responsibility and exercises authority over the house. So sometimes God, it's the man, sometimes it's the woman, Michael. No, no, that's not what 1 Corinthians 11.3 says. 1 Corinthians 11.3. The Bible's <clears throat> always a problem to be overcome. <laughs> well, that's why we got to get it out of the penalty box. Yeah, that's true. And out into the real world and apply it to our lives, at least here in the church. So uh, I'll read it again. First Corinthians eleven three. So I'm, I'm talking about a husband is ahead of his wife, uh, and they are called to uh, to reflect God's dominion, God's headship mm -hmm. through their household um, in in the creation of the household. So First Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Mm. So you see, the head of a wife is her husband. So the husband is a head over his wife. So what we see here is that headship is a masculine calling because God created it to reflect his own headship. A couple of examples of this in scripture. Um, in Eden, Eve was the one that committed sin first. Mm -hmm. um, she took the fruit and ate, um, and then she gave it to Adam and he took it. But Adam was the one that was held accountable. So whenever, whenever God showed up in Genesis 3.9, he didn't say, Adam, Eve, where are you two? Come on out, both of you. He says, Adam, man, where are you? Right. And then he questions him. He interrogates Adam. He doesn't, he's not interrogating Eve. And it is because Adam is the head. He is the one who is responsible for his wife, and he failed to protect her. Um, and that's why, same, no, they're both held accountable, but Adam has... A, a particular accountability because his sin was a, a failure of his headship. Mm -hmm. Romans 5.12 says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So you have this, this failure of headship where sin came into the world because one man sinned. He doesn't say because one woman sinned. It is the failure of Adam, his sin. And of course, feminists don't have a problem with this one. 
They don't no, have, they don't have a problem when the man is the uh, is responsible for the wickedness. Yes, which, which is a biblical truth. We are responsible for the wickedness, um, but we just don't get to selectively choose which verses we we like and not. Right. The reality is, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to explain this. The, the reality is that while man is responsible for everything that happens within the household and within any covenant that he's entered into, he is the head of that covenant, the marriage covenant. He also is. Uh, he also enjoys certain privileges. Yes. And but, that is proper and appropriate. Yes. Because authority and responsibility go together. Right. So when, when because Adam is responsible uh, for his household, there's a, there is a measure of authority that is bequeathed to him from God uh, to be able to carry out his duty. God right. does not give him a responsibility without a correlating authority. And so there is a, you, you see that built into the creative Two order. things are organically connected. I am responsible for everything that happens at the Thomas household, and my wife should obey me. Those yeah. two things are organically connected. Yeah. Now, for the listeners who hear that, and they think, oh, gosh, that Wade must be a tyrant. He mm. must be this, come in and throw the hammer down, and everybody's on. It's like, I'll just, I'll testify on Wade's behalf, because he would, he would not do this for himself. I have, there are not many households, there's none that come to mind. But I don't know of, of any households that exude more joy and love and, and genuine happiness. Wade's wife is a wonderful woman who she, she obeys her husband because her husband is, her husband treats her like gold and Wade takes responsibility for his household. She's protected. She's provided for. They have six children. God, uh, by God's grace, they will have more. But the, the way that it sounds when you say my wife obeys me, that sounds to modern ears like, like tyranny. You're yeah. an oppressor. You dastardly patriarch. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Right. When I have seen your household flourish, it's a wonderful household and it's an inspiration. Uh, it's inspiration to me. So, uh, so don't let that word throw you. It is a beautiful thing that I have seen. It is. And I, and I hope it's provocative in the right way. I want our ears to be accustomed to the way scripture speaks. So should wives obey their husbands in everything. Yeah. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to derail the, the speech there, but, uh, yeah. Well, headship is a masculine calling. God created that way. Um, sin came into the world because the covenant head of the human race, Adam mm -hmm. fell into sin. And this same principle 1 Corinthians 11.3 applies this to every marriage. Um, the head of a wife is her husband. That is a, that is a truism about human marriage in general. Um, so the masculine actor should be the head in any covenant. Is that a fair way to... We're talking about uh, marriage. What do, mean, what do you mean by masculine actor? I mean the, the masculine agent, the masculine... Uh, Whichever the man or woman happens to be more masculine in the relationship. Good, good uh, pushback. So I'm thinking here of there are uh, two primary covenants in Wade Thomas's life, and that would be my marriage covenant and my church covenant. The heads of those two covenants are masculine. They are the male, uh, or in, in this case, they're all embodied human beings, I suppose. So it's good. It, I can say male, <laughs> but they, they are the male or masculine actor, agent. Uh, I am the head of my marriage covenant and our elders are the temporal heads of our church. They're all males. And Jesus is the eternal head yeah. of our church in his male body. So within a covenant, is it fair to say within a good covenant, the, the masculine person 
or a masculine person should be the head? Um, so I don't think it's a matter of should be. The way that I would say it is, it is a thing that is, not a thing that should be. Now, whether or not it is done right or mm. properly is another matter. So let's say you are a complete wimp and you're a doormat and your wife runs roughshod over you. She bosses you around. You're a henpecked husband. Mm. Um, and I would say you that just is described a, a good sitcom. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, well, I describe many sitcoms, <laughs> yeah. probably the most common type where yeah. you have the woman, she's the one that knows the score. Yeah. She's running the show and you've got this bumbling oaf mm. of a husband and dad who just happens to be along for the ride. Mm. I would say he's still the head. It, he, it's not that, oh, it's like, oh, I need to start being the head around mm. here. No, it's like he is the head. He's just failing. Okay. Um, so this is gravity. It, 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 it's going to flow to you. The responsibility is going to flow to you regardless. I mean, you, you yeah. are responsible whether you want to be or not. Husband or father, uh, elder of your church. It, it, yes. That, okay. So I, in, in the same, same areas you mentioned. So I'm the lead pastor of our church here. Um, what, in, in my home, there are areas, so I am head in my home. Jesus says so. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11, um, sometimes I do that well. Sometimes I do that poorly. Um, I hope that the trajectory is towards more godly headship in mm -hmm. my home. And a good indicator of that is how are my wife and children doing? Mm. Um, do they feel secure? Do they, um, do they feel protected? Are they loved? Are they led well? Or do I treat them as Ephesians 5 tells me to treat my wife and do I raise my children the way Ephesians 6 says. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I, I want to, by God's grace, I'm growing, um, but, but I fail. Obviously, I'm a sinful man. I fail. Same thing in, in my church. Um, there are ways that, now it's, in church, it's, it's not quite the same. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say it is, it is if, if to the extent that it's a covenant relationship okay. in a local church body, it's not the same to the same degree okay. as a marriage. Uh, you may feel differently, but uh, regardless, there is, there are, I, I am the responsible party. Okay. Uh, and there are ways that I will fail and there are ways that I succeed. And either way, it's, it's you, not, it's not an option. Okay. So I'll, 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 uh, I'll be done after this and we can proceed. Um, but I, I was asking because I want to say this, cause I think it's true. Um, the United States constitution is to some degree a covenant. I do not think it would be good for us to have a female president or normalize female presidencies for the reason I'm talking about. I think it is the, the way God has made the world. It is good for yeah. a male to be responsible for the covenant, for the yeah. keeping of the covenant, for the maintenance of the covenant. Uh, and, and I, I think it goes with the grain of creation and redemptive history to do corporations that way, to do uh, republics like the United States of America that way. And I think it goes against the grain of creation to have females be the head of covenants. Yeah. Well, I would say, um, well, I, I would imagine that somebody listening to this might be thinking, yeah, well, what about Deborah? Mm -hmm. uh, she was, she was a, a ruler in Israel. Um, and I would say, yes, she was. If um, she was a ruler in Israel as a judgment. God was judging the faithless men, the cowardly men of Israel, by appointing a woman to be their leader. Now, God did that. God raised her up, and um, she 
she performed a duty that was obedient to God, but it was not a model to be emulated. If God wanted that normalized, why didn't he do it more frequently? Right. Yeah, it, it was this was it was not this diversity, equity, and inclusion program at the divine level over the headship of Israel. Right. It was there was a message there. And if you read the story, it's not hard to it's not hard to see. Baruch was a faithless man. Mm-hmm. And it was a shameful thing that Israel would be, uh, uh, or the um, the victory would be given to a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, "I'll go if you go with me." Yeah, and she says, "Okay, but the the glory is going to be given to a woman." And it is. Yeah, uh, it's pathetic. He was is a pathetic man. Yeah. Um, but let me just say it this way: we should never look to the book of Judges for an example of normal anything. Correct. That book is a book of descent into chaos. Yeah. Um, it ends with a guy cutting up his dead wife concubine or something. Se- yeah, yeah, sending her to the tribes of Israel. So, okay, I, I just wanted to offer that. It it seems to go with the grain of the world, how God's made it, and redemption in the history of redemption for masculinity to embody the head of a covenant. Yeah, I have I have one on here. Um, I want to include it. I was going to. I was thinking about skipping it, but I but I think I can I can do this without derailing us too much. My last point: headship is a masculine calling, and I want to. I want to give an example of that, which is uh, the covenant sign of circumcision. Okay. So circumcision is the application of headship in the Old Testament. So um, Painful application. Painful application, (laughs) no doubt. (laughs) So so go with me on this. In the Old Testament, this is back in the book of Genesis, but it was a, it began in Genesis 17. The covenant sign was circumcision. Now, Need I state the obvious? Only males can be circumcised. Mm-hmm. So there was never a, a woman would never have been head of household um, in this sense because mas- headship is a masculine calling, as indicated by the fact that the the heads of household were the ones circumcised, and it was something only physically possible that could be done uh, onto a man. Did I well, say that right? You you did, but in a day and age where I just saw a TikTok video yesterday of a man experiencing his first period. So I mean. <laughs> Where <laughs> I saw where, that, yeah, we're in 2022. So like a man who is like literally a dude, like yeah, biologically yes. a dude, but he's dressed up in a skirt, wearing like makeup, a wig and and he's and got... he's, he's got like this heating pad, and mm. he's doubled over. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and I saw, yeah, <laughs> and I saw like a bunch of women commenting on that. It's mm. like, has he ever met a woman? Like, no, like women don't act that way. Yeah. But it's it's a performance art. This mm. this is it's theater. And we're supposed to respect it. Oh, we get derailed. Easily. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yes, the, the covenant head had to be circumcised. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, let me just state that again. A woman was never head of household because headship is a masculine calling. And the, the sign of that inclusion in the covenant was only administered to males. So it, it, there, was not a, there was not a possible way for a woman to receive the covenant sign. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, um, does that, what does that mean for, for the women? Does that mean that there are, will be no pre-Jesus' time Jewish women in heaven? Does that mean they were excluded from the covenant? Um, yes. No, I'm just kidding. Man, you're hardcore. <laughs> no. No, he, the, here's the thing. Not. like Inclusion in the people of God was marked by circumcision applied to the men, Jewish men directly. But the covenant inclusion applied to Jewish women by their relationship to her covenant head, mm-hmm. which would either be her husband or her father. Now, there's a if there's another verse that we won't get to. I won't I won't read this today. It's Numbers 30, 
that verse is deep, deep, deep in the penalty box. Mm-hmm. Um, and it offends very much. But it's the vow is that the uh, yes. a man can can uh, revoke his his wife's vow or or his daughter or his father. Daughter, his, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the re- it's it's in the penalty box because when you read it, it sounds to our modern ears like, well, you know, women, they're kind of crazy and impulsive. And so if they make a vow, her dad can come along and nullify mm-hmm. it. But that wasn't the case. That the thing was like she was not a covenant head over right. her household. If she makes a vow as an individual woman that comes that contradicts the the will of the covenant head, then she could she could jeopardize the the standing of the mm-hmm. family. She could bring harm upon the family. And so there's a provision in scripture. It's like, hey, like she may not have known that the father had already made a deal for this land. Yeah. And so the fact that she had negotiated a price for this land, I'm just using this as a, for example, um, it, it gives her covering to say like, Hey, like she, um, that, that those kind of deals need to be decided by the covenant head because there needs to be some order. Yeah. It is not to say that women are inferior, but it, it reads that way to modern ears when we're looking for something to be offended by. Can I, one, one good biblical picture of the truth of what you're saying. If you were to say what what single story, what what single book of the Bible that is a one story unit best tells of godly womanhood, you'd probably say the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, she's the embodiment of, of the Proverbs 31 woman, this this pagan woman from Moab who has now been made a believer in Yahweh. Wherever you go, Naomi, I will go. Wherever you yeah. lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. She goes to a man, her Goel, her kinsman redeemer, yeah. and says, cover me. She goes at night to Boaz, lays at his feet the way she's been instructed to by Naomi, and says, cover me. She doesn't say, I don't need a kinsman redeemer. We're doing fine here, yeah. Naomi. I've I got a job. We're okay. Yeah. She goes to Boaz and seeks to be covered by him, uh, and, and then is blessed into being the line, in the line of David and in the line of, yeah. of the ultimate covenant, yeah. our, our Savior. So that's Old Testament. Now, the New Covenant. In the New Testament, uh, the covenant sign is baptism, right? So baptism, we baptize men and women. So you might think, oh, so Jesus was the liberator of women. He came along in baptism in the New Testament. Now we, now we, we treat women equally rather than that mean old patriarch. Mm-hmm. Now we can have pastors and pastresses. That's right. But the thing is, is that um, ba- it, that. That presumes that baptism and circumcision signify the exact same thing. They're related, but they don't signify the same thing. Baptism in the New Testament, it signifies our union with a man, mm-hmm. a covenant head. And that covenant head is called the circumcision of Christ. So when a woman is baptized into Christ, she's baptized into a, a, a different covenant head. She's got a transfer of of her allegiance from from Adam, the household, a sinful household that's under a sinful head of household, who mm-hmm. is Adam, into the household of Christ. And baptism signifies her inclusion in the covenant of Christ. And so the circumcision of Christ is not done with hands. Rather, it is a circumcision of the heart. So we're not, we don't get away from covenant headship. We don't get away from circumcision because me, I'm baptized into Christ. And so I am baptized into the circumcision of Christ, meaning by faith, mm-hmm. I have a new covenant head. So it is, there is still a masculine redemption that takes place. Um, and the fact that women are baptized, it doesn't, they're, they're not, you're not skipping around the circumcision issue. Baptism signifies 
being included in the circumcision of Christ. Does that make sense? It does. Um, our, so we're not Presbyterians. We do not believe circumcision and baptism are as synonymous as a Presbyterian would be. Right, there's the there's discontinuities, there's I discontinuity. would say. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and that is why uh, there is a slight difference in how we view our children, typically, from a Presbyterian. So I, I do think we're we're more Presbyterian, you and I, in the sense that we believe there are promises. Uh, I'm about as Presbyterian as right. you can get. Right. So, so Without. I, I absolutely believe <laughs> I tell my kids that God has put them in my family so that they would hear the gospel and believe that is why they, to glorify God through their salvation. And I think I have biblical warrant to proceed on faith that he will do that. Uh, but our children are not members of our church. And we, they don't take the Lord's Supper yeah. until they have been born again to actual saving faith. And they will then get the baptism that is the sign of that saving faith. Their entrance into the community of the new Israel was not through birth. Yeah. Their entrance into the community of the new Israel is by grace through faith. Yeah. Now, outside of our church, I would imagine most of the people that would listen to this podcast would be more of the Presbyterian variety. Yeah, that's true. Because of the sort of things we talk about. Hey, Presby's. Uh, hey, Presby's. What's up? We, yeah, we love you. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. you're out there. Most of my heroes are Presbyterian. Oh, yeah. Van Til, uh, Machen. Yeah. I'm... Well, what I have found, um, this is this is a, a distraction, so be it. I have found that um, Presbyterians are simultaneously better equipped at having these kind of dialogues because of the covenant theology, yeah. which I'm largely in alignment with. Um, but then when they deviate from it, uh, Presbyterians also have a lot of, um, uh, shall we say, deviancy in, um, because there are a lot of people that know this doctrine and they explicitly reject it and they've mm -hmm. embraced like revoice and things mm -hmm. like that. But uh, I've, uh, what I have experienced, and this is a new revelation, um, maybe I'm late to the party here, but Baptists are largely out to lunch. They're just not equipped. Um, yeah, I And think... I'm speaking to my own people here, but I have found that Baptists, a lot of times, they, this, the idea of covenant headship, these sort of doctrines are... I grew up in two non-confessional denominations or two non-confessional traditions. Uh, my earliest days were Pentecostal, my, my latter days now have been Baptist, and in both of those non what I mean by non-confessional is... There's not a historic piece of paper with fixed words on it that we all say we believe that teaching of the Bible. Westminster. Right. Uh, so it's not like Westminster Confession of Faith was inspired. No Presbyterian really believes that. No good one. But they do believe this is, we're all saying together here as Presbyterians, we believe the Bible teaches this in English right here. Yeah. Uh, since Baptists and Pentecostals don't have that, um, it, it does make it a little easier for us to go, for us to sort of think, there was Jesus and the apostles in the book of Acts, and then it just, then us. And there's <laughs> nothing in between. Uh, and so we can have our own sort of weird <laughs> private interpretations of scripture and not have to consult Tertullian, not have to consult Augustine, not have to consult John yeah. Ansel, not have, yeah. Yeah, well, let me get us back on track here. Right, sorry. I want to read Colossians 2. Uh, I've already referenced it, but I'll read a text now. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, In him, referring to Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So that's the men and women, Christian men and women are, so women are circumcised. 
uh, in that sense, because they received the circumcision of Christ signified now by baptism. Somebody's going to take that single snippet audio clip. It's going to make the... When you're famous, once you're famous, once you're yeah, I, once the, there's enough people that actually listen to this and care enough. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me just land the plane on that one. When a man or woman becomes a Christian, they receive the circumcision of Christ. It's not physical; it's a spiritual circumcision of the heart. But the fact that it is still called a circumcision is important because it indicates the man or woman is being transferred into the household of Christ as a new covenant head, and the head of household is always masculine. Mm. All right, here's the point number seven. I said there were six, but then I added the one about circumcision. Here's point number seven. Christian adoption, I'm talking about the adoption not of babies, but I'm talking about adoption into the family of God. It's a change of covenant headship. Mm. So this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. And this is why our provocatively titled podcast is accurate. This is how masculinity saved the world. Our next one's going to be called How Femininity Destroys the World. (laughs) That will be a solo episode uh, by Wade Thomas. (laughs) <laughs> and I will change all the passwords. <laughs> <Yeah. on> our... <laughs> so the good news of the gospel comes in here. Every human being belongs to one of two human households. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ, the head of a righteous house. Adam is the head of a fallen house. In other words, Adam's sinful household replaces Christ's righteous household for the believer. So um, can you look up Colossians 1.13. You can read that one, and I'll read 1 Corinthians 15.22. So 1 Corinthians 15.22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So that's Adam's household had grown to become a kingdom of darkness, of sin and death, but Christ, through his death and resurrection, established a new righteous household, and he is the covenant head of this new household. That is 1 Corinthians 15.22. And then uh, Colossians 1.13 is, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Yeah. Yeah, so that is, we see this transfer idea of we are brought into a different covenant, a uh, different head. So like being saved, Christian, like being saved is not merely um, you pray to prayer, your sins are forgiven. Um, and you get baptized and that's it. It's like there, there is a transfer of allegiance to where you are now, you are taken out of, you're rescued out of a fallen, corrupt, dark, evil, wicked, sinful household that uh, fell into sin because of our previous father, Adam, and was reigned over by the father of lies, Satan. We're rescued out of that and transferred from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. It's not a, it's not a daughter. Because only a male, a male of, of headship is masculine. Is Christ is our head of house. We're transferred into Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's mm. a reference to Christ. It's interesting you say that because we could almost then call this how masculinity saves the world after wrecking the world. Well, absolutely true. Um, but if you say how masculinity wrecked the world, well, I guess that would drive up our... Uh, our our feminist uh, yeah absolutely so <laughs> listeners we, be like ooh that sounds right. good let's listen to that I mean but so Satan is not the mother of lies he is the father of lies Adam is not our first mother he is our first father right we have been transferred from one masculine covenant that is a sinking ship or 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 a kamikaze plane uh, and transferred into the yeah. into a better covenant from a better there is a masculinity that's toxic and like Satan is a father that's a patriarchy right it is a patriarchy of sin deceit and lies now. The what we are contending on this podcast is that you don't overcome 
a wicked fallen patriarchy by making a matriarchy. That's exactly you right. Don't, you don't overcome bad masculinity with femininity. You don't overcome a kingdom with a queendom. That's right. You overcome with a better kingdom. Yeah, you overcome a wicked kingdom with a righteous kingdom. Yeah. So the the serpent, the serpent's head was crushed. Uh, I mean, it's Christmas time mm-hmm. um, just last week, and so you've seen. There's this meme that I've seen, and it, it's it's sweet. You see, like you know, Mary kind of consoling Eve, right? Um, and she's got her foot on the serpent's heel, and she's pregnant. Um, it's sweet, and I, I, I'm not complaining about it. But it, it, Mary did not crush the serpent's head. That's right. Jesus Christ crushed the serpent's head. Now, Mary is honored for what for playing the feminine role, That's right. which is giving birth, bringing the life of Christ. There would not, he was born of a woman. I read this earlier in Galatians 4. There would not have been redemption. There would not have been a redeemer were it not for femininity. So in that sense, um, Mary saved through childbearing. Luke uh, chapter 1 or 2, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit and proclaims, why is this the mother of my Lord? So she exalts Mary by saying she is the Theotokos, the mother of my of my God. But it's the Lord who is ultimately, that's the one who my baby just jumped, you know, in response to. Mary here by herself ain't going to yeah. make anybody. Did you just say Theotokos? I did. Have you been like hanging out with uh, some Orthodox guys or something? I No, I wrote recently on why it's a good and acceptable word. Uh, anybody <laughs> interested can go check out wadethomas.com. But I, I yeah, Theotokos, an old controversial word. I, I am fine with using the word Mary as the mother of God in that sense. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. I'm just giving you a hard time because I, well. That's another not side. Not tacos, not like tacos in Mexican food. <laughs> Heavenly tacos. Not like godly tacos. <laughs> the god, the taco god. Yeah. No, tacos. Yeah. Yeah. That Christian. Great Mexican restaurant Christian, started by Christian. Christian yes. tacos. That That's yes. the next Chick-fil-A yes. in Mexico. If you're listening to this, tacos. you go ahead and take that. You start a Mexican restaurant outside San Antonio. Call it Theo Tacos. Oh, amen. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Send I, us hallelujah. a royalty check. <laughs> All right. Um. I'm laying in the plane here on this last point. I, w- I want to read to you Galatians 3, 26 to 28, because this is the, the feminist uh, holy grail uh, text that they use mm. to say the sexual distinctions are eliminated, and it means the exact opposite of what yeah. they argue. So Galatians 3, 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God mm. through faith. Now, if you have... Uh, gender-inclusive translation, it might say uh, sons and daughters. I wonder if the the TNIV probably says sons and daughters. Or children, maybe. Maybe children, yeah. But the word is sons, and the it's a legal designation. I'll get to that in a second. But this, you are all sons of God. So whoever is a Christian, man or woman, so woman listener, you are a son of God through faith. For as many as you, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then here's the text. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Mm. Evangelical feminists and egalitarians like to read the verse, there is no male and female, and they hear androgyny. It's like, ah, there we go. There's no, there's no sexual distinctions that matter. There's no... Um, you know, women should be pastors in the church and right. everything. They read that as the elimination of sexual distinctions. But Paul, one, he's not talking about our function in the church. He's talking about our our status in the covenant. And he's saying that if you are in Christ, then in that sense, the distinction doesn't matter because we're all saved. The price of our redemption is the same. It is the blood of Christ. Is the There's no discount for women. 
Um, the same Paul who wrote that also wrote that it's shameful for women to speak in the church. Uh, so right. He, he's not schizophrenic. He's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he's not talking about sexual distinctions. He's talking about the redemption that was accomplished by our masculine redeemer, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. And because we are in the son of God, mm. we are in Christ. That verse or that expression is used some 80 plus times in the New Testament. We male and female are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, then we re-receive the inheritance that is the sons. So uh, we, we, the, the masculine redemption applies to us all. So in that sense, um, we are all one. So there's not, in, in the ancient world, girls and women were not included in the estate, right? So they did not receive an inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Christ, both men and women have a legal designation as a son of God. So we are sons of God, which means that we are co-heirs. So, uh, which is why he also says slaves nor free, right. even though he tells slaves elsewhere to obey their masters. So he doesn't mean there are literally no slaves and no free people at all. He means in this way, in this sense, you are neither yes. slave nor free, male nor female. Right. And so as a slave, let's say you're a slave and you have no hope of ever obtaining freedom. Mm-hmm. You can hope in Christ that you are an heir to the king. You are a child. You are a son of God. Onesimus and Philemon have the same inheritance. Right. So by, in their earthly station, there is a distinction. Right. Uh, Philemon is, is, uh, is his slave owner. Mm -hmm. I guess, is that how they say slave owner or? Yeah, or master. Or slave master. Um, so in that sense, so it's kind of like, you know, you, um, you have in a modern church. You have somebody's a CEO of a company mm-hmm. and somebody who is uh, a clerk in the mailroom. Right. And they can sit in the same pew together. And in that sense, in that pew, there is no distinction. Now, that doesn't mean that the mail clerk uh, the next day can claim the right. corner office for himself saying, well, I'm, I'm the same as you. It's like, no, there's distinction there. The same Paul would tell the CEO, don't treat the mail clerk harshly. And he would tell the mail clerk, submit to your CEO. Yeah. So let me, I'll, I'll put it all together with this and then we can... Uh, we can end on our reasons for hope. The point is this. There could not have been a feminine redeemer okay. because headship is a masculine calling. God ordered the universe this way. In Genesis to Revelation, it is the consistent testimony of Scripture. It is a testimony of the fact that God the Son was incarnate into a male body and the fact that all the 12 apostles were men, all the 12 uh, the patriarchs, the heads of the family in uh, the book of, or in the Old Testament in Genesis, mm-hmm. the tw- 12 tribes, they're all males. Um, the kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah. Yes, that that means something. It does not denigrate women, um, but it is a it, it is the pattern that says God saves the world in this way. God works in this way because this is goes with the grain of creation. God created man to relate to his own household the way God relates to his household. Mm. So there could not have been a Jessica Christ because. Beginning with God's household and continuing through Adam's house, his fallen house, ending with the righteous house of Christ. This is the way it has always been. The pattern of masculine headship was written into the created order. Therefore, when the time came for, the, for God the Son to take on an, an, a human body that would go on forever and ever, a mm-hmm. physical body, God did not have two equally suitable genders to choose from. Rather, a masculine God could only be incarnated in a masculine body. Jesus Christ was born as a boy, not a girl, because only a man could have secured our redemption as the covenant head of a redeemed house. And these are not 
it's not as though God has some set of rules that exists simultaneously to him. You know, there's this, there's right. God who's eternal. And then next to him, there's also this eternal grid that he has to view everything through. No, these are according to his nature. God is the yes. only eternal being there. The, the rules that exist exist because they go with his nature. They conform to his very essence and his desires and will. Yeah. The uh, rules the rules express who he is. Right. The rules and, are a part. And he is a masculine yes. God. The rules are a communication of who he is in creation. Yeah, there could not have been a feminine thing that he would create that would exercise authority over God. That's right. Um, and That's right. So it is, these things are the way God made it. And we we do ourselves no favors. No. And that's how, let me, let me my own reason for hope that I'll end on is is along those lines. The world itself, the, the unbelieving world, is hurting itself, harming itself by, by pretending like this isn't real. It's jumped out of a skyscraper window. It's falling at you know 9.8 meters per second or whatever rate you fall at. Um, <laughs> I failed physics. But whatever rate you fall at, it's falling, and there is no undoing it. Gravity will not stop being gravity. Yeah. But what we can do as Christians is we can rescue them from that fall, <laughs> and, and we can ourselves refuse to jump out the window. By, by loving the fact that God made womanhood and manhood. Yeah. And he made femininity and masculinity. I have three daughters and three sons. And I love that my daughters are daughters. And I love that my sons are my sons. And they both know what is... that They knew somewhat just from, from the womb. They knew that there was a difference between male and female because that's how God has made us. But they're also being taught it by their mommy and their daddy. That, yeah. that there is goodness in being a woman. One of my reasons for hope is that that the more that is lived out and loved and embodied in Christian churches and households, the more the world will flock to it and be drawn to it. Not everyone. There are ideologues who are committed to yeah. feminism, no matter how alone and bitter and scared it makes them. But there are lots of people who are persuadable and the joy and the health and the beauty and the worship and the cheer and the Christmas mornings where grandpas are surrounded by his six grown children and his 25 yeah. grandchildren are all singing hymns together that that I believe will have a way of persuading. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a very good apologetic. Yes. Uh, healthy masculinity and femininity living under the same roof with roof within a covenant are a wonderful apology. Yes, it is. So, yeah, it's a great point. Um, my reasons for hope. Uh, we'll finish with this is. Um, it is that Christ's victory is a victory of headship. Mm. So headship, it's an essential feature of mm -hmm. the gospel. And we're not saved because we are righteous. We're not saved by being good men, good Amen. women. We're not saved by, uh, by our adherence to this sexual code. We're saved because we have a masculine covenant head, and he is perfect, and he is righteous. And he did what godly masculinity does. Yeah. And that is he assumed responsibility, and he laid down his life for us. and so. Uh, I, that is a reason for great hope for me and to know that this headship was written into the created order and that God has delegated to me as a man, a husband, a father, a pastor that, that inspires me to follow my redeemer mm. to, to, and it, it, it is not, it, it is not merely, uh, it's not a matter of like being in charge. It, it is a matter of embodying something good that Christ has given to me and calls me to embody as a man. So as a man, there's something intrinsic in my body that testifies, this is how I am to honor God. Yeah. And that 
that does fill me with hope. That gives me hope for myself. It gives me hope for my family. Um, and, and I, we do have, um, the example of Christ, um, who, who laid down his life and the father sent Christ to demonstrate uh, Ephesians three nineteen um, says that, that we would, you know, Paul was talking about the father revealing the breadth, length, height, and depth of his love for his people. And that Paul also prayed in the next verse that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be, and that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. He's, he's talking about this in the context of the fatherhood of God who sent his son, who gave his life for us as a sacrifice so that we can be united to him as our covenant head. And that, that is a, that is a hopeful, beautiful, glorious thing Mm -hmm. that I want to live in my life. Um, I see that in the women in my church, the women, uh, the woman that I'm married to, I see that, um, growing in my daughter, um, as a, as a young woman who is, um, about to go off to college and, and I see, it, it delights me to see her desire. Um, she's a feminine young woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, the, 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 these doctrines infuse those things with so much more meaning because they have covenant, eternal, redemptive significance. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. Amen. Well, let's close this way. Uh, Christian, be, please be encouraged by the fact that God is masculine and that he is saving the world. If you are an unbeliever, a non-Christian, please uh, consider the claims of Christ and come to him as a masculine savior. He is glorious and he is redemptive and this world that he loves very much, he is very much saving. Amen.